Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Howdy, I'm Steve A, and this is the Mill Creek View podcast. We are focusing on Alabama, the beautiful Roll Tide, and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community, this time special guest, Ashley Smith. Welcome to our People in the News, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Ashley Smith. Ashley is 32 years old and lives in Deetsville, Alabama, a full-time realtor for Remax and also a full-time mom of three daughters, 11, 7, and 2. Oh, my gosh. On top of working and taking care of her girls, she spends a large amount of her time advocating for her husband, Aaron Cody Smith's freedom from incarceration and wrongful conviction following an on-duty officer-involved shooting. After his incarceration in May of 2022, he was left to, she was left to single-handedly provide for the family while single parenting and fighting for his vindication and freedom. Her faith and relationship with Jesus Christ is what gives her the strength to keep fighting through this season she's in. She has uh, seen God provide in ways she never could have imagined over these last 16 months. Even in the confusion and frustration, they have continued to lean on him for guidance and strength through it all. Her husband and Ashley are also big motorcycle enthusiasts and love a long ride on a Harley, but that's on pause until he comes home. She took, she looks forward to the day justice is served in Cody's case and he's back home with the girls so they can enjoy living life and serving the father together. Aaron Cody Smith was convicted in 2019 for the fatal 2016 shooting of Gregory Gunn. Mrs. Smith, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm sorry that you and the girls had to go through the Christmas season alone again. Um, normally, we cover Tennessee stories, but this one jumped out at me as interesting for my listeners. Uh, Alabama, the We Dare Defend Our Rights state. Um, tell us, your local news report said Aaron approached Gunn for a field interview on McElvey Street in the early morning. Was anything unusual about doing that field interview 3 a.m. in the morning? And is McElvey Street a particularly rough part of town, gangs, crime, homicide, et cetera? Okay, so, you know, that's actually a good question because I feel like one of the big things people kind of hone in on is this idea that he didn't have any reason to stop him in the first place or he was not within his rights as an officer to stop this guy that was minding his own business and um, he should have just let him walk. And um, that specific area had um, some rampant burglary issues. Um, it was out of control. And so he had been ordered by supervisors to stop anything and everything that moved in, in his shift during his time um, in the middle of the night. And this guy fit the description of who they believed to be breaking into the vehicles. Um, so he, you know, stopping someone to talk to them um, when they're walking the street in the middle of the night in a high crime area, that's what officers are supposed to be doing. Um, that is their job is to, to check things out and talk to people and make sure, you know, you're where you're at and doing what you're supposed to be doing and um, not causing any problems. And um, this idea now that law enforcement officers have no um, right to stop and talk to someone that's minding their own business, stopping him and apprehending him and trying to arrest him while he's walking down the street, minding his own business, that would be wrong. He can't do that. But stopping to talk to him and things escalating and this guy deciding to shove an officer and all that stuff, that the way that it, it happened 
him stopping him was not against protocol. Stopping to talk to him was his job. Um, so was, I think was Gunn known to police to be a problem? Was McElvey Cody's usual patrol area? Could he have known him? So no. So he um, he didn't have any history with this specific person before, um, but this specific person had had run-ins with law enforcement in the past and um, very violent um, history with law enforcement. Now, um, Cody didn't know that whenever he stopped him. Um, that was something that we came to know after the fact, but he did have um, a history of violence against law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, when someone is, is afraid they're going to go to jail, they're going to do whatever they can do to get out of having to go to jail. And so in this case, Cody didn't have any intentions on arresting him to start out. Um, but when things turned um, violent and he shoved him and, you know, things didn't go well um, at that point, you know, he had a cause for arrest. And so he pursued him and it just, it just didn't go well from there. But yes, he did have a violent history with law enforcement, but Cody didn't well, know him. Here's how our friends at the New York Times reported it for national coverage when covering a very small town. White Alabama officer guilty of manslaughter for killing black man. Mm -hmm. Did they try to paint Aaron as particularly racist? And did he have any past history of racism in his file to justify that? Okay, so to the second question, no. Um, he had never had any excessive force issues. He had been on the force for several years. He, is, he was an outstanding law enforcement officer and had never had any prior history of trouble or excessive force or anything like that. Um, it was a time, um, the shooting happened in 2016. So it was a time in our nation where um, that was just such a, the racial um, undertones are so relevant um, and very um, kind of aggressive, I guess. I don't, I don't, I guess that would probably be the best way to say it. And um, they took a story or in a situation in a case and a life-changing event um, and tried to make it about a racial issue. And that, that is not at all uh, the demographic in the, in the city that Cody worked in, the likelihood that he would stop anyone of any other race is very is low. Um, just the, the city, the town that he worked in, that was not his normal district. They had moved him into that district because he was a proactive police officer and they were trying to clean up that area. Um, but that the demographic in that area just was what it was. It wasn't like he was out specifically um, trying to target black men um, or black people in general. That's just the demographic of who lived in that area. Um, so the, so the rest of the article says the officer shot Greg Gunn after initiating a stop and frisk. You said that didn't frisk, just stopped encountered as the unarmed man was walking home from a card game, have it to be 3 a.m., in 2016. If you were going to rewrite that headline to be more accurate, what would you say? Um, I guess probably um, law enforcement officer pursues subject who became violent um, and armed himself against the officer before shooting. Um, mm -hmm. So it was not a situation where there was a frisk. So the man was wearing a, when he first initiated the stop, um, he didn't frisk him to start out. He, they were just talking. Um, he, you know, the kind of, hey, it's late, it's 
cold. It's February in the middle of the night. You know, what are you doing out here walking the street? Where are you headed? Kind of thing. And the guy was wearing a big baggy sweatshirt. And so he kept putting his hands in his front pockets and for Cody's safety, um, because he didn't know what was in his pockets. He said, Hey, you know, I'm going to just do a quick search to make sure that you're not armed and I'm safe and all that. And so during that frisk, he felt something hard. Cody felt something hard in the waistband of his, um, of his pants. And so when he felt that it was about the same time that he felt that object, he radioed for backup. Um, and when he radioed for backup, guns started sidestepping, like trying to get away from him. Um, Cody pulled his taser and was like, Hey, we're not going to, you know, don't, don't try anything, you know? And then, um, at that point gun shoved him and took off. Um, the second he shoved Cody, that's, that's a charge. You know, you can't put your hands on a police officer. Um, so he shoved him, Cody took off after him. Um, he kept putting his hands in that front spot at that point, Cody didn't know what was in his waistband, uh, later found out it was drug paraphernalia. So he knew he, if Cody found that he was going to be in trouble. So he decided to shove him and run. Um, the taser was ineffective. Cody tried tasing him a few times for his, mostly for his safety, because while pursuing, he wasn't sure if what he was reaching for was a weapon. Um, the taser was ineffective. And so they got on a porch and, um, Mr. Gunn grabbed a pole and at the time it was dark, Cody was by himself. He had tried tasing. He had tried his asp, um, and the large muscle groups, you know, shoulders, legs, um, none of that was working. And he was, yes. Cody shot gun seven times during that altercation between the two guys. Seven is a lot, but he tased him four times too. Uh, why was that necessary? Was gun on drugs himself? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Of course. Uh, that means he was okay. So investigators within the department said it was a clean shoot. I guess the jury missed that. Why was he alone in this situation? Why would he be at 3 AM in that neighborhood alone on that night? And did he have a body cam, um, body camera to, to prove all this? So, um, the alone part, you know, technically there are other units that are also assigned to that location, but they could be at a gas station getting an energy drink and, you know, a hot dog or something while he's actually in the area he's supposed to be working, working. And so when he radioed for backup, the other person that was supposed to be his backup just didn't get there, um, in enough time, but he's, he was a solo unit. So he didn't have another officer in the vehicle with him. Um, I do think that's a huge protocol issue. I think that the department, really failed him in that regard. Um, he shouldn't have been in that situation alone, um, without any sort of, um, backup. And so, uh, what was your other question? I can't remember. Oh, if he had body cam footage, I know. Oh, body so, cam. so gun was 58. H how old was Aaron, um, at the time? 23. 23. Okay. Did he have body cam? I mean, not a rookie. How long had he been a cop and before this? And did he have body cam footage? Okay. Yeah. So several years, I mean, he had been on the, on the streets for four years, I think. Um, so I wouldn't say a rookie, but I wouldn't say, you know, a seasoned or career law enforcement officer either. Um, but he'd been on the streets long enough to know what he was doing, um, and long enough to have created habits. And so body cams were not issued to Montgomery police department until just a couple weeks before this incident happened. 
um, body cams were across the nation being used in large cities like Chicago and New York and things like that because um, they were they were needed and they started becoming more um, widespread around the time of Cody shooting. So and they're expensive, a- so they could afford it. Those bigger cities departments, right. yeah. Right. And so um, he had just been issued his body cam a few weeks before um, this shooting happened. And so he was not in the habit of clicking that thing on every single time he made a stop. Um, and the way that this specific stop happened, it it progressed really quickly. It wasn't like um, he didn't jump out of his car and turn his body cam on because that's not what he was used to doing. He had been on the police. He'd been policing for years before body cam was issued. And it was just not customary for him to remember to do that. Um, and the body cam actually fell off during the pursuit anyway. And they have them now where they're kind of like magnetized to the, to the uniform. So they don't, fall off as easy back when they were issued to him, it was just clipped on. So during a pursuit or a scuffle or something like that, it could easily just fall off the uniform. Um, so during the pursuit, it did fall off. Even if he had turned it on, it wouldn't have been on him at the time that the shooting occurred. Okay. And this was back before George Floyd and the BLM riots of 2019. Do you think they tried to make a martyr out of gun in Alabama? I know what we talked about the New York times, you know, white cops kill black people. There was a big narrative of actually white cops out there hunting down and murdering black people. It's kind of crazy, like they did for Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Was this like a trial run, do you think, trying to use a small town white police force uh, to get the federal narrative that 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 uh, blacks are not safe around police and then which obviously led to the defunding of the police movement and a lot of riots in the summer of love? I think, I think, yes, I think that's probably been one of the most frustrating things as the political atmosphere and what that has, how that has affected things for Cody, um, that, that he followed his training and he followed his use of force, the use of force continuum where he went from taser and baton. He tried all of of the things that he's supposed to use first, you know, um, He tried all of those things before he swapped to his gun. And the fact that he followed his training um, and shot when he was trained to shoot, which is when gun armed himself with something that could potentially be incapacitating to him. um, The fact that he did things the way he was supposed to do them and was still charged um, for murder, not manslaughter, not um, he was charged with murder. Now he wasn't convicted of murder. Thankfully he was convicted of a lesser included manslaughter charge, but he was charged with murder. And I do think that that is because the political powers that be in our community in the city of Montgomery, um, saw an opportunity to join the bandwagon per se of this political movement that, you know, Mm excessive force with law enforcement against um, minority groups and things like that. It's just not the type of person that Cody is. Um, It doesn't have, it doesn't speak at all to the training that they receive. You know, you have these officers that get out and they follow their training and then they're still charged with crimes that they shouldn't be charged with. So they either need to change the training or stop charging the officers for doing their jobs. And yeah. so I do Derek, think that Derek they, Chauvin's mother showed the manuals, four of them that showed how to put the knee on the shoulder blades, which is exactly like he was doing on video, but it didn't look that way. And obviously it got very political. Um, 
Cody, in the trial, Cody gave a statement to investigators hours after the shooting, which didn't, they said did not contain details that were divulged later, according to the State Bureau of Investigation, SBI. What's that? What's that about? So a couple of things with that. Protocol has changed since Cody's shooting. Um, you are not supposed to interview an officer um, that close to when the incident occurred. Um, they're, they have things in place now where if there's an officer involved shooting, they don't get their first statement for, I think it's like at least 72 hours after the shooting because the officer needs time to decompress and um, process is trauma for them too. You know what I mean? Like if, if you've had to shoot somebody and you've never shot someone before, um, that you have to cope and deal with that. Um, and the trauma does you, um, remember things differently, how your brain processes that and how your memory, um, comes back to you over a few days versus right when it happened. Um, Cody's story, the fundamentals of his statement stayed the same. The stop, what took place, um, a gun arming himself with a pole, all of those things stayed the same. The fact that he tased him and that he tried other methods of force before pulling his weapon, all of that stayed the same. There were little things that he remembered as time went on um, that he would change whether gun swatted his hand, you know, pushed his hand away or whether he shoved him. Um, Little things like um, if he tased him, um, did say three drives or two drive stuns and um, two of like your like where it shoots out. I don't know the, the term. That's that's bad, but I can't think of what it's called. Um, yeah. So um, there's like different ways you can tase. There's one where it where oh, it has the, the um, things that the probes I, the the yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a terrible time remembering what's okay. Called. You're not a police um, officer. You're a spouse. Yeah. I and so um, he, little things like that might would change. And he was always so transparent. I think that's what's so frustrating for me is they ask him for a statement right away. The same, like, I mean, he, the shooting happened. They took him in and got a statement immediately, like within a couple of hours of the shooting. And, oh. and the, like the next morning he was giving another statement and they took so many statements from him and he would go to sleep and he was riddled with nightmares right away. I mean, the second he would close his eyes, it was like instant, just, um, just his brain trying to process. Um, and so he would start remembering things, maybe a small details, a little different. And so he would tell his attorney, like, um, I think I remember this a little different than maybe how I said it before. I want to be honest and I want to be transparent with, with everybody that I'm talking to. If this is important, it might, might be important. I feel like I need to be, you know, forthcoming about anything I remember differently. He was trying to be honest. Um, and that honest to a fault kind of mm -hmm. made him seem inconsistent. Um, so this idea that he was just changing his story or that he was, um, maybe hiding something or lying. Um, that's not at all the, the parts of his story that really mattered, the fundamental, the training asked him following his training, his use of force continuum. Um, the fact that gun put his hands on him, the fact that he picked up a pole and armed himself, all of those things, those stayed the same. And those are the things that really matter. Um, one of the things was, did he scuffle on the ground with him at one point? Or did they not scuffle on the ground? Um, 
he, it all happened so fast. And if he, he was remembering that at one point, maybe they, you know, tripped over a curb or if he tripped over the curb and he, um, he had to get close enough to him to drive stun him. So were they scuffling or was he, was he able just to get close enough to reach him? I don't know, you know, and, but at the end of the day, he tased him and it didn't work. So whether how that happened, whether it happened in a scuffle on the ground or it happened in pursuit, what difference does that make really? You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so those as long as it's things- immaterial, we would call it, then I guess the jury wouldn't have paid attention to it, but that was in there. Right. And so I just wanted to clarify, but after a four day trial, jurors did hear that testimony. Uh, the former officer chased, tased and beat gun in a West Montgomery neighborhood before the fatal shooting. Defense lawyers maintain that Smith fired in self-defense because Gunn grabbed a painter's pole from a porch to swing at him. The shooting drew protests in the city. Uh, How bad did that get? And how did you and the girls deal with that in the community uh, that you grew up in uh, being upset about your husband and and maybe a false pretense? So I think that, you know, the protests in the city, it wasn't anything like the reason that they charged Cody with murder was to avoid protests in the city. So this idea that the city of Montgomery just had, you know, all these people just making a big, I mean, yeah, they had a group of people with some signs like um, black lives matter and that sort of thing, just naturally that's a product of whenever something like this happens. And so that sort of thing did happen. I think the worst part was probably the, there were death threats and things like that. Um, as far as for Cody, you know, um, that part was really hard for him. There was a lot of anxiety and just, um, pressure on him. Like he wouldn't even go to the grocery store for a long time and things like that, because, um, it's scary. I mean, that's not something that you expect to have to deal with. And so, um, it was just very, the protesting didn't get as bad as it could have gotten. And I think that that was a, intentional move on the city's part um the mayor the police department um the entire the entire city everyone involved with the decisions that were being made in cody's case they made the decisions that they made so that the protests wouldn't get out of hand they didn't Mm -hmm. want to see the city the city of montgomery end up like the ferguson situation um Mm -hmm. so they made a decision to make an example out of a young officer who followed his training and did his job and defended himself um, in order to keep the protests from getting out of control. And you didn't lose any friends and family or the girls didn't uh, get tormented at school for something that their father was being accused of or the news was. That didn't happen until, um, after the conviction. So after the conviction, you know, it was a little, as far as the girls, um, our oldest was in the first grade. And so, um, she had a little friend kind of draw a picture of like a jail, like bars, um, and a person behind bars or something. And, um, said something about like, this is, this is your dad or something like that. Just being, um, parents are not careful about what they talk about and what they allow, um, their children to be aware of. So, um, naturally parents at home in our community are going to be talking about our situation because it's close to home. Um, and then the kids over here and then they go home and, or they go to school and they're, um, kind of projecting some of that onto our, our children. And so, Mm -hmm. 
there's never been anything that's made it, you know, made us feel like they weren't safe at school or someone was going to, you know, was bullying them over the situation or anything like that. But there are some just little hard, little things that were hard to, you know, deal with, but it's been better. I would say better. Probably the last couple of years has been easier. Okay. Uh, so C C Cody's trial ended in November, 2019 with the jury finding him guilty of a lesser charge of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison in January, 2020. Um, no priors, decorated police officer, very young, young family at home. Is 14 years typical for manslaughter in Alabama? Um, the sentencing guidelines for manslaughter, I think it's like five to 20 or five to 25 or something like that. Um, or maybe it's like, I can't remember, but it's, um, our judge was a retired judge um, and he was pulled from retirement to handle Cody's case. And so um, I think there was a lot of pressure on that judge to make a, a decision. You know, our, our attorneys said that he kind of threw us a bone in a sense, because anything 15 years or more Cody would have to serve day for day. There would be no good time. Um, good time kind of cuts the time into a fraction of what they're actually. So if he gets 14 years, he only actually has to serve like four years, nine months and some change on the good time rule. Um, but if he got 15 years or more, he would actually have to serve day for day, 15 years, um, unless he paroled out at a certain time in between his, you know, when his sentence started. Mm -hmm. So, um, you mentioned the judge, Montgomery County judges recused themselves from the case. The trial was then moved to Dale County. Could he not get a fair trial in Montgomery? Um, you know, just the media and how things were, um, portrayed through the media about Cody, uh, the jury pool selection, in Montgomery would have largely been um, people that had been influenced by what the media was putting out there. And a lot of what the media put out was inaccurate. Um, saying gun was unarmed is inaccurate. Um, and I think that that's probably the most frustrating part about it is um, you don't have to be armed with a gun to be armed. Um, if someone swings a pole at your head, um, and knocks you out with that pole, uh, and you're incapacitated, then they can take your weapon or your patrol vehicle or whatever. And yeah, so a pole is a deadly weapon. It can right. hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get on a little six by six porch in the middle of the night with someone swinging a pole at your head and tell me if you feel like that person was armed against you or not. I mean, that's just at the end of the day, um, the media made it where if a jury pool had been selected in Montgomery, it probably wouldn't have um, been fair. No. Okay. In December, 2022, the court allowed Smith to file a writ of certi. Uh, I don't Slashiari. play a lawyer on TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is. Asked the Supreme court to review a previous decision from the court of criminal appeals. The court quashed Smith's writ, but several justices suggested that Smith's counsel and subsequent conviction may have been questionable. What was questionable? Writ of certiori. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, the whole thing was questionable, but 
<laughs> you know. Um, In the so, sake of time, give us two things or something. Yeah. Okay. So I think the biggest thing is um, his original charge was murder. Um, he did the intent issue. I think was probably one of the biggest issues that they they touched on with the Supreme Court um, decision. They um, the state had a burden to prove intent that Cody walked into this with an intent to kill. Um, and he didn't, I mean, he didn't, this was not, um, clearly not murder. I mean, clearly, clearly not. Um, he shouldn't have ever been charged with anything, uh, much less murder. And so you go into a trial and, um, it's really frustrating because I feel like I, I wish that he would have never manslaughter wouldn't have even been on the table because if none of the lesser included, it was, if they were going to charge him with murder, they should have been able to prove that he murdered him and they couldn't. Um, and throwing in this lesser included of manslaughter was a safe decision for a confused jury. Um, and so I feel like they made a middle of the road decision because they were not sure what the right thing to do was. Um, so they moved it to Dale County. They got retired judge, circuit judge, Philip Mick. Lachlan, uh, he held a bond revocation hearing in Ozark. Uh, why did he do that? Okay, so COVID happened. So basically, Cody went, um, Cody went to jail, and then he went to prison for four months at the beginning. Right after the conviction, he went. He was incarcerated straight away. Um, we got him out in March of twenty twenty. 2020, my years kind of run together, um, on an appeal bond so that he could be home while we fought on appeal. Um, as the weekend after he came home from prison in March of 2020, COVID kind of blew up everything. That's right. Um, then it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't think if it had happened any different, I don't even know we would have been able to get him home. Um, I think that that timing is just a God timing thing because, um, I don't think we'd been able to get him home if it had happened any later in the year of 2020. So um, we got him home and then the courts kind of shut down. Everything was really slow moving. No one was making decisions quickly, which the court process is kind of slow and agonizing anyway. So you add COVID in the mix and it's just, it was awful. And so in May of 22, we still didn't have any, um, we didn't have what they call a certificate of final judgment because uh, we were still appealing. The court of criminal appeals had come back and denied it, but we were still in the process of like reconsideration and pushing it up to the Supreme court, um, of Alabama. And so basically the state said, this is taking too long and the family deserves for him to be serving time while all of this gets sorted out. So they put in a request to the judge for him to revoke Cody's bond while we continued on the appellate process, we argued that case law supports that he's allowed to stay out on this bond until basically until the fat lady sings, until we have that certificate of final judgment, um, which wouldn't come until after the Supreme court denied our request that quash that we were talking about after the Supreme court quashed our writ, um, and suggested we file the rule 32 after that happened they issued um, a certificate of final judgment that was in January of 23. So if they had waited until they were supposed to revoke his bond, 
um, we would have gotten almost another year together um, before they revoked. And so the judge um, gave it like 10 days or a couple weeks or something to think about it. And then he ended up coming back and saying that um, he was going to go ahead and revoke the bond and send Cody back while we continued to fight the appellate process. So Justice Jay Mitchell wrote that it was difficult to understand how a reasonable, probably instructed jury could have convicted Smith. Justice Tommy Bryan claiming the omission of specific evidence was problematic in Smith's case and possibly raised a serious question about the effectiveness of Smith's counsel. Tell us about Aaron's first defense attorney. Uh, was Aaron misrepresentative, misrepresented and is the second one doing a better job? Okay, so yeah, I think that um, when it comes to attorneys, it's kind of, you can't, there was a lot that happened at trial that shouldn't have happened. There were things that should have happened that didn't happen. And I don't know what his thought process was, um, why things went differently than what we were expecting, what his um, motivations were for changing things up and not calling witnesses he was supposed to call and not objecting to anything. Um, nothing was properly preserved for appeal. It made it absolutely impossible for our appellate counsel to even um, write up a good appeal because all of the issues that they write in an appeal have to be preserved in trial. So he has to object to things. He has to raise issues. If he doesn't do that, there's nothing we can fight with whenever the conviction is handed down. And so um, he had, you know, it was, had been a long time. I do think he had been fighting for Cody from, from the beginning up until trial. It took from 2016 to 2019 to even get a trial. Um, and so I do think he was kind of tired, um, but I don't necessarily think that that's enough of a reason to what seems like just throw the case. Um, during trial. Like, I mean, it just, it was like on day two or three of trial, it was like something changed and I don't know how to explain it. I don't know what was happening in his mind or what he was thinking. Um, there was an expert witness that could have really spoke some reason and truth and understanding into the jury, um, that he just didn't call, he just didn't use them. And I don't know why, I don't know why he didn't, but he didn't. And so, um, our, our appellate counsel that we have now, um, is doing, is doing a, a good job and hopefully that'll be. So Cody is seeking relief under Alabama's rule 32, which allows convicted criminals to receive post-conviction relief. If more evidence or other issues in a case come to light post-trial, Quote, in this case, both trial and appellate counsel failed to provide Mr. Smith with constitutionally adequate representation as required by both the United States and Alabama constitutions. The filing reads, but for the errors committed by trial counsel, there is a reasonable probability that the outcome of Mr. Smith's trial would have been different. But for appellate counsel's error, there is a reasonable probability that Mr. Smith's conviction could have been overturned on appeal by the Court of Criminal Appeals or the Alabama Supreme Court. Smith is challenging his conviction based on six grounds, many of which include his contention that he had ineffective counsel during his trial. The grounds include, uh, I don't want to read them all. Um, you tell us. Let's give us a couple of these six here. 
Okay. So basically, you know, there was, we did fall on a couple of the issues that the Supreme court recommended us to use because naturally if, if the Alabama Supreme court isn't going to give you a roadmap, um, of legal advice, what to do, then you do what they say to do. And so, um, naturally the intent issue was raised, um, our trial counsel's not calling the expert witness was probably one of the bigger issues. There were some um, Alabama law enforcement agency uh, witnesses that were should have, should have been called that weren't called. Um, there were some jury instruction issues, um, some language that was added in the jury instruction that was just, I mean, they used a case, they used language from another case that's not law enforcement, um, that is absolutely irrelevant to Cody's case. Um, and it was confusing and it almost contradicted the self-defense pattern that was used earlier in the jury instruction. So it was extremely confusing. Um, and the jury even admitted to being confused during deliberation and asked the judge for more explanation on some things. And the judge was like, you've got a law book. You're going to have to figure it out. Like I already told you the instruction. Was this guy a public defender or referred to you by the union or how did he get in this case? Um, our, our trial counsel. Yeah. Um, he was, um, a PBA attorney, uh, which is the police benevolence association. Um, Cody didn't actually have PBA, but this specific attorney, um, knew Cody's family because Cody comes from a law enforcement family. Um, his dad was a career law enforcement officer. And so, um, he just knew he knew them. And so it just worked out that he was willing to help. So, okay. So currently Cody is incarcerated at the limestone correctional facility, uh, Part of a pad, I got this from your local news, part of a pattern, Alabama inmates' bodies sent back to families missing internal organs, including brain and heart in bizarre cases. The families of two Alabama prison inmates who died in the past few weeks, this is just a couple weeks ago, are demanding answers from state authorities after they received their loved ones' bodies bizarrely missing several of their major internal organs. The University of Alabama, Birmingham's Department of Pathology conducted his autopsy before returning his remains. Lauren Fariano, the attorney representing Dotson's family, recently commented on Singleton's case, citing that it proves that this is absolutely part of a pattern. Why did they send him, a police officer, there, and is it general population? Yeah, okay, so no, thank goodness. Okay, <laughs> um, good. He is in a protective custody dorm. So he is at Limestone Correctional Facility, which is still Alabama Department of Corrections. Um, and, you know... Cody and I have both discussed how much we're going to talk about the Department of Corrections while he is in their custody, and that is not much. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> so, I agree. I agree. Um, but there is a lot that will be discussed whenever he is free to discuss it. So um, it is a it is a nightmare. I mean, it is not for even even your worst criminals shouldn't have to. Um, go through what these inmates go through and deal with what they deal with. Um, there was a story recently about an inmate, um, in our area, um, Cody is three hours away from us, um, because the only protective custody unit in our state is North Alabama and we live in central Alabama. So, um, no. he is, uh, thankfully he hasn't had any, um, physical harm issues. 
uh, which I'm really, really, really grateful for that. Uh, the dorm that he is in is law enforcement and, um, judges and attorneys and other, you know, corrections officers and political figures and people like that, that get in trouble. Uh, there are still some general population inmates that come into the protective custody dorm because they need protection, um, from the general population, people that are causing problems or whatever. So, um, I would say there are still a good bit of men in protective custody that shouldn't be in there, um, that can cause problems. Um, the drugs, are just, I mean, it's riddled with drugs. Mm. Uh, it is especially a law enforcement officer, but not only that, but from a family of them, there are probably people in there who's his dad may have helped put them in there and uh, they may not like that. An inmate died at the limestone correctional facility on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. uh, last week, officials said Demarcus McLeod was showing erratic behavior and had to be subdued by officers. He was taken to the healthcare unit for assessment. After that, he became unresponsive. Prison staff began life-saving measures, but were not successful. Sounds like drugs. McLeod was pronounced dead by the attending physician. The ADOC Law Enforcement Services Division is investigating McLeod's death. The cause of death is pending an autopsy. The 45-year-old McLeod was serving a life sentence for murder out of Calhoun County. We'll see if his organs get harvested or not. Um, Justice J. Mitchell wrote in a special writing that Aaron Cody Smith failed to preserve any viable legal theories for the court to review, so his appeal had to be denied. But Mitchell also wrote that it was, quote, difficult to understand how a reasonable, properly instructed jury could have convinced, convicted Smith. That sounds contradictory. What does that even mean? Justice Mike Bolin concurred with that, which I don't even know what that means. Um, agreed. He just agreed. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what concurred means, but I don't oh, understand okay. what Mitchell <laughs> was trying to say about how it, he, it's difficult to understand how a reasonable jury would convict him, but yet there was some viable legal theories that didn't make sense in the defense. Yeah. So basically that is legal mumbo jumbo for, we can see that you don't really deserve this, but we're just yeah. going to kind of take a step back and not give you what you're asking for, because the way that you presented this is mm. One of the things that they said that just will always, always stick with me is um, this is probably the most astonishing failure that they've ever seen in a criminal case. So you can say as Alabama Supreme Court that this is probably the most astonishing failure you have ever seen in a criminal case. You can see that he shouldn't have been convicted. You can see that he doesn't deserve to be where he is, but you can't help us. Um, I think what that really boils down to is, um, you know, I feel like they tried to help us by telling us a different way to approach our appeal. Um, so we are grateful for that and we have taken those measures. Um, but I think when you're the Supreme court of Alabama, if you're on the same, everyone is on most everyone on the, on the Supreme court was on the same page. I think they probably could have done something. Um, and they fell on our legal. We didn't have any viable legal theories for them to our appellate counsel could not they were basically, how did they say it? Um, trying to make jello stick, nail jello to a wall or something. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. They didn't have anything that they could really use because our trial counsel didn't give them anything preserved. So they had to kind of make up what they could not make up, but like they had to. Um, they had to deal with the cards they were dealt and they right. were very good. Right. Yeah. And so they kind of had the political to... environment of the of the town and the nation at the time. It, it was just not a kangaroo court, per se, or just a formality. 
he was going to go to jail and there was not much that could be done about it. Um, you wrote our old, did you agree with that by the way? Cause I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do have to. Yeah, no. That. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our oldest daughter wore one of his t-shirts to bed last night. Ashley Smith said, sometimes they'll remember something funny. He said, like one of our girls couldn't find her flip-flops. And she said, one time daddy said, you've got your flip. Now you just need the flop. So just little stuff like that will remind the kids of him, but they're okay. It's just something to take day to day. How are the girls holding up? Um, You know, and we didn't think that it was going to take this long. <laughs> to get everything sorted out. And so, um, our oldest has started middle school this school year. She started middle school and then we have a seven-year-old and our two-year-old will be three in April. And so, um, it's been, they're resilient, you know, kids are resilient. Um, if we talk about it, they get sad. <laughs> and so, um, we try not to really, um, we try to talk about funny, happy stuff, kind of like the flip-flop thing. And, um, it's, um, you can tell a difference in a household that has daddy home and a household that doesn't. Um, I think that the brunt of that falls on me more than it falls on them. Um, because I have to be like discipline and nurture. Um, and that's not how God orchestrated the family. That's not what it's supposed to be like. And so, um, they're, they're tough and they're strong. They're ready for him to come home and we miss him so much, but, um, they are, they are, pretty great kids. So yeah, uh, my mind is back home with my family. Aaron Cody Smith said, I've got a wife and kids trying to figure out life without me to help provide for them. That's the most difficult aspect of it to get painted as a guy who is just out there looking to be a bully with a badge. is just the furthest thing from the truth. Right. Yeah. Do you know, former MPD officer, Ronnie Blunt? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said officers were so upset by all this and so mad at how the city was turning their back on someone who everybody knew was a proactive officer. He said about Aaron, he had already gotten the combat ribbon. He had been named officer of the month a couple of times. He got officer of the quarter. He was a good, good street cop. All of a sudden, the Montgomery district attorney decided to charge him with a murder and everyone was confused and everyone was pissed off. No idea how he got convicted, honest to God. It's the most bizarre thing. It's the main reason I left MPD. Has the MPD reached out to and tried to help you? No. Um, how about uh, Coach Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican, or Katie Britt? Anyone? Um, so I have made some contacts with, um, really just since Cody's been gone this last time, I've um made some contacts with some leaders in our state because I could tell the the political nature of this if I didn't kind of play at their at their game some and try to get um in front of some of these state leaders then we probably wouldn't stand a chance to be honest with you I mean it's just once they dig their claws so deep into you it doesn't matter how hard you fight or how much money you have or how many attorneys you hire um it's almost impossible to get any sort of real justice. And so, um, yes, I have made some contacts with um, some of our political leaders and they have um, within their capacity to, to help have, have insinuated that they would look into it. So anyone in particular, we should start a writing campaign for and uh, <laughs> thank, thank them for actually paying attention and not. Um, maybe not yet. Not yet. Okay. Let us yeah. know. And what about the Alabama state fraternal order of police? Anything from them? 
Um, yeah, so we have our um, state president, um, Everett Johnson. We love him, and he's just he's been really great as far as um, just checking in on me and the girls and making sure we're good and um, putting word out there for us. Um, at, at, you know, we've just had someone reach out to us and say that in a FOP meeting in North Alabama, which is nowhere near us, um, that Cody's case brought up, got brought up and they were, um, really just talking about how they're just very supportive of him and, um, hoping that things work out for him. So that's been nice. Very good. Um, Alabama attorney general, Steve Marshall expressed continued concerns over law enforcement recruiting and job retention in Alabama during a visit Thursday to mobile for a fallen officer commemoration at the Alabama state port authority. That was last week. Uh, maybe that's why they can't get folks because, um, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have their back. A police executive research forum issued a report last year that showed police officers resignations up 47% compared to the year before the pandemic in 2019. And before the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, more than three quarters of police agencies in the U S are reporting difficulties in recruiting qualified candidates to become police officers. A quarter of the agencies surveyed reported eliminating or reducing services because of staffing, the report says, and certainly what's left aren't proactive, like Officer Blunt said of Cody. Uh, that's one of the reasons why there is a waiting list for the Elmore County Sheriff's Office, Blunt said. They don't pay worth nothing, but guys leave MPD and will gladly go work for Bill Franklin because Bill Franklin backs his cops up and Montgomery doesn't. Ouch. Um, how do you, how old are your kids now, Ashley? And, and how do they feel about the justice system in America having to watch this ordeal as they grow up in it? Um, 11, seven and two and our seven-year-old will be eight in March. And then our two-year-old will be three in April. So almost, almost eight and three. Um, you know, they had a, a career day thing at the school recently and our second grader, was talking they had a tent with law enforcement officers under um under there talking with the kids and stuff and um giving the kids opportunities to ask questions and you know feel comfortable around the police and things like that and um our middle daughter decided to start sharing her our family's story and who her dad is and um she kind of took over and just really stood up for what she believes is, is right. And how he's been treated was wrong. And, um, you know, we've had to tell them, um, it's confusing to a child for someone to be punished that didn't do anything wrong. So they understand consequences for bad actions. Um, but trying to explain consequences for not doing anything wrong can be confusing. And so we've had to kind of explain it to them. Like, um, daddy was doing his job and while he was doing his job, he had to use some tools on his belt and then we have some people who there are some bad guys essentially that have lied about how daddy did his job and said that he didn't do his job the right way. And the judge has a responsibility to either believe those lies or not believe them. And in daddy's situation, the judge was believing the lies and not the truth. And so, um, that's just kind of, and I think that explaining it that way to a child helps them understand why he's being, now he's in trouble um, and he's having to be punished for something he didn't do because the people who lied about what he did, um, the the judge believed them instead mm -hmm. of leaving. 
us. And so that's well put. So you wrote uh, the Montgomery County District Attorney was up for reelection and saw prosecuting this officer as an opportunity to gain votes with no care whatsoever to the life he was ruining in the process. Still believe that to be true? Absolutely. Tell us about uh, fundthefirst.com. Okay, so Fund the First was a was a fundraiser that I started before the Pipe Hitter Foundation um, started sponsoring Cody's case. So I had started a um, a fundraising site for us um, when Cody first went back because people were asking like, how can we help? And um, I didn't want to just you know go fund me. It will kick us out because there has to be it can't be controversial or, or whatever. And so Fund the First is an officer um, backed um law enforcement friendly type um website that has um that lets you do fundraising and so and we went fun founded with by robert garland and michael la luna co-founders uh, yeah, yeah so we were able to get some good support from that from that website in the beginning of cody's reincarceration. so um and then the pie pitter foundation picked us up at the first of 2023 in january and then most of all of our fundraising really has been through them since since then. Okay, well, we are out of time. So tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you. Maybe that's your main donation channel to, to help you out with the law and yeah, kids, so whatever it is. On our social media, um, you can look on Instagram or Facebook for Justice for AC Smith. Um, we share in large part on that about um, our story, how Cody's doing, updates on his case. And if you want to stay involved with our our family, like I share everything. I've um, been pretty much an open book as far as that goes. And so um, justice for AC Smith is where you can keep up with our story. And then um, the pipehitterfoundation.org, pipehitterfoundation.org is where you can learn more about Cody's case. And um, they have a donation set up there for us for legal fees. All right. Well, God bless you. God bless the girls. God bless Cody. I hope that justice is out there and everything works out um, and that you're all home together someday soon. Uh, and thanks Thank for coming you. on with us. Thank you so much. My name is Adelia Kirchner with the Tennessee Conservative, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View Tennessee podcast. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof, look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show. Producer Steve, what did you think of our guest, Ashley and Aaron Cody Smith's story? Just another heart-rending story, Steve. You're on mute. Just another heart-rending story. Um, we've had, how many is this now that we have talked to where injustice has become 
the byword these days with individuals who are doing their job or showing their right to meet. Um, and then we've talked to a couple of people who've discovered um, what it's like when Dinesh D'Souza was on here and you find out that most of the people in there are been there far too long. And some of these people at the top that are pushing for them to be there should be the ones that are in jail. And so prayers out, prayers goes out for that family. And it sounds like if I got her right, that he will probably serve about five years. And then if he, um, good conduct, he should be out. Um, and that was the silver lining of the judge giving only 14, not 15, if he's good behavior, but you know, it's a dangerous place that he's in. So, well, we went long on that one. I thought it was worth it. So time for my coach for the day. Uh, Steve will just have to insert music right here. Before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button, and I really hope you like it. An individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Martin Luther King Jr. Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also a prison. Henry David Thoreau. Mm. What a stupendous, what an incomprehensible machine is man. Who can endure toil, famine, stripes, imprisonment, and death itself in vindication of his own liberty and the next moment? Inflict on his fellow man a bondage, one hour of which is fraught with more misery than ages of that which he rose in rebellion to oppose. Thomas Jefferson. I could do Thomas Jefferson every day. The practice of arbitrary imprisonments have been, in all ages, the favorite and most formidable instruments of tyranny. Alexander Hamilton. You can chain me, you can torture me, you can even destroy this body, but you will never imprison my mind. Mahatma Gandhi. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Ashley Smith, for sharing your heartbreaking story with us and reminding us with Martin Luther King Day on Monday that a prison can't contain the truth. But unfortunately, tyrant politicians playing politics can. This is goodbye for now. I'm your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. See you all tomorrow. Peace in our time and definitely glory to God.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.